Warning, this podcast contains adult language, mature themes, and graphic descriptions of murder scenes. It is not intended for younger or more sensitive listeners. You You have have been been warned. Welcome back to this spooky show, your last exit on the highway to hell. We are your eternal hosts and attendants of the gas station of the damned, the Ghoul Babes. And I also have mail order degrees in murderology and murderonomy. I'm Vivian. And I just want to do hood rat stuff with my friends. I'm Lauren. And I'm Jade. Shout out to Alex Ansel, who stared at my boobs last night. Woo! Boobs! And joining us again this week, our failed sacrifice. See, okay, what happened? This is what happened. What happened Our invisible was. intern tied the damn rope off on the wrong end. So long story short, Quincy's back with us and we need a new intern. Hi, guys. <laughs> so what are we going to do to him this week? Uh, knives? Knives. Nice. I say good. in honor of the episode that we're doing, we recreate every single Jack the Ripper murder scene. In order? In order. In alphabetical order, even. Well, alphabetical order doesn't help. Do it in regular order. Regular order. Regular order it is. So this week, gather round children for the tale of Jack, the ripperingest ripper ever to have ripped Victorian London. And if you couldn't tell by that fabulous use of the word ripper, yes, this week we are discussing the granddaddy of famous serial killers, the OG himself, Jack the Ripper. This episode isn't about a really gassy guy named Jack. No, surprisingly, <laughs> he's not just about a serial farter. There's people walking into clouds in London going, oh god, that was... Oh, oh, Jack the Ripper strikes again. Oh, oh, that one smells like onions. Oh, what is that? Like a like a tar pit? <laughs> oh, it smells like onion caught fire. I don't. <laughs> it's so bad. It's so bad. I, I do, don't know. Do I still have me eyebrows? <laughs> <laughs> I think they're burned off. <laughs> I think they've done burned off. <laughs> so, so I'm going to add on to our content warning for this one, just because. The descriptions we are going to get into later on when we do dig down into this are very graphic. So when I said the content warning at the beginning, I was not kidding. Cannot stress this <laughs> yeah. enough. It's it's uh it's pretty it's pretty brutal. It's pretty brutal. So we're, let's uh let's get into it. All right. Jack the Ripper terrorized the East End of London from August to November 1888. His primary target seemed to be the prostitutes who were working in a mile area around the districts of Spitalfields, Aldgate, and perhaps most, perhaps most famously, Whitechapel, as well as in the city of London proper. He was known at the time before the famous Ripper letters where he was given his own now infamous nickname as the Whitechapel Murderer or Leather Apron. To fully understand the scope of the crimes, we need to understand the workings of Victorian London at the time. To say it was harsh living conditions for the poor was quite an understatement. The poorer areas of town, mostly on the East End, were not much but crowded, filthy tenement buildings where the lower classes sought to scratch out a meager living. The streets were dirty and rat-infested. The air was rank with desperate poverty and women, who were still treated more like chattel than actual people, had to do what they could to get by which a lot of the time in these crime-ridden streets meant turning to prostitution. It was a hard life for many, and it was about to get even harder. There is no... Dramatic sting! (laughs) Where's my piano player? Say everything dramatically! (laughs) 
<laughs> there is no concrete way to estimate the actual number of Ripper killings. Some estimate, estimate only four, and some estimate as high as 11. For the sake of this episode, we will be discussing the five generally agreed-upon victims known as the Canonical Five. The first victim, discovered on August 31st, 1888, was Mary Ann Nichols. Nichols had been born Mary Ann Walker on August 26, 1845. She was also known as Polly. At the time of her death, her age was estimated to be between 30 and 35 years old by the East London Observer. But her father at the inquest said she was nearly 44 years of age, but it must be owned that she looked 10 years younger. Well, that's nice of him to say. That's right. very like, nice. Oh, just but just let me say, she looked so much younger. That's not a dad thing to say, though. Yeah. That's a very like, dad thing to say. That's my baby girl. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like, sad. She's the apple of your eye. She's always going to be pretty to you. Yeah. Probably was like 44. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Shit, man. Anyway, Nichols was a woman of slight build, being barely over five feet tall. She had a dark complexion, her brown hair was peppered with gray, and her five front teeth were missing. Well, dental care wasn't, you know, stellar back then. It was the times. I mean, you could have just made that fashion. Well, Just wear them around your neck? Like what? Like I'm going to go on the necklace? <laughs> yes, just... Me teeth fell out, so I made some jewelry. <laughs> Instead of one of those candy necklaces. This right. one's, but this one's me teeths. This one's me teeths. See, this one fell out in August of 1886. How many tooths is not enough tooths? <laughs> she was described as having small and delicate features, high cheekbones, and gray-colored eyes. She had a scar on her forehead from a childhood injury. She was described by Emily Holland, a former roommate, as a very clean woman who always seemed to keep to herself. She was also an alcoholic. As most people were at the time. Yeah. I mean, if I had to live in this area of London at that time, I would have been an alcoholic, too. That's I don't true. even drink and I'd be an alcoholic. I would have been an alcoholic, an opium fiend, you fucking name it. There's just nothing else to do in, around that time except for, like, become an alcoholic, become a drug addict. Yeah. That's, Basically. That was fun. There was, there was no <laughs> streaming services. There was no video games. There was, like, it's like, yeah, there were books, but, like, how many, you know... Most people weren't literate necessarily at the time. So if you couldn't read, like, what would you go do? Not only that, but the books were a product of the time. So everything was fucking depressing as hell. That too. Right. It was Dickens or nothing. Basically. You want to shoot up this black tar heroin? Hang on. Let me just finish Dickens first. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's just as depressing. It's just as depressing, if not more. So back to our timeline. Between 3.40 and 3.45 a.m., Polly Nichols' body is discovered in an area called Bucks Row by Charles Cross, a man on his way to work. He calls over Robert Paul, who is also on his way to work. Quote, come over here and look. There's a woman, Cross says to Paul. Paul believes he feels a faint heartbeat. He says, quote, I think she's breathing, but it is little if she is, unquote. The two men agree that they don't want to be late for work. Really? You find a dead body and you decide that you don't... Okay. Not even dead. He says he believes to be a I think she might still be alive, but shit, I gotta be there in five. We gotta go. desensitized do you have to be to that kind of stuff? Just, um, yeah, half-dead woman laying around, but you know what? I gotta get that bread. (laughs) Right? (laughs) I mean, the next thing they do is pretty nice, at least. They uh, rearrange Nickel's skirts, which had been pulled up to give her some decency. 
and alerted the first police officer they meet on their way. In the meantime, though, Nichols' body had been come upon by another officer, PC John Neal. He signals to another officer, PC Thane, who joins him. The two are soon joined by PC Misen, the officer that Cross and Paul had encountered. PC Thane calls for a doctor, Dr. Reese Ralph Llewellyn. The officer returns with the doctor a few moments later, around 3.50 a.m. During a coroner's inquest, it was found that she had been strangled and then had her throat cut so deeply that she was nearly decapitated. The eight-inch-long incision was made with a long-bladed knife, moderately sharp and with great violence. There were no other injuries on the body until around the lower part of the abdomen where several violent wounds had been made. Two or three inches from the left side was a jagged wound. It was a very deep wound and the tissues were thoroughly cut through. It was determined that the horizontal cuts had been made from left to right and were done by a left-handed assailant. Ah, those damn lefties. Hey, hey now. Hey, hey, wait a minute. Hey, hey, hey. I take exception to that remark. Hey, 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 yeah, hey. They're not all murderers. Yeah. Just Vivian. Yeah, Just exactly. Vivian Thank here. you. Jeez. <laughs> give her some credit. Yeah, Give the others some credit. Maybe not me, but like, it was not all, hey, hashtag not all lefties. Okay. <laughs> hashtag not all lefties. Okay. All right. That's it. That's going to be trending. Yes. Hashtag not all lefties. Trend it. Do it. Make hashtag it happen. Hashtag devil's playground. <laughs> hashtag not me. <laughs> So back to our little story here. The Ripper did not strike again for seven days. His next victim, Annie Chapman, a.k.a. Dark Annie, was discovered on September 8th, 1888. That is a lot of eights. It is a lot of eights. It's a lot of eights. It's 9-8-1888. Annie was born Annie Eliza Smith in September 1841. She was also a bit on the short end, being exactly five feet tall, but was strongly built. She had a pale complexion, perhaps due to malnourishment and her suffering from tuberculosis. You've really got to be dedicated to your craft. Like, I got the TB, but... But, but, care for a fucking... (laughs) (laughs) I got the TB, but I do love my Johns. (laughs) But if she was... Taking one for the team. Right. How sexy would that be, though? Like, (laughs) I'm blood. (laughs) The description for the way this lady's built just makes me think she's a female Wolverine. Uh, five feet tall and strongly built. Yeah, kind of. There we go. A little bit. Too bad she didn't have the claws. Maybe she would have actually survived this one. Oh, that would have been great. Snick, snick. Coming at you, bub. Ching, ching. <laughs> I'm coming for you, bub. <laughs> so it was said that she also perhaps had syphilis and was likely dying. This poor Jesus. woman. Jesus. Jesus. She I'm gonna still go into work. She's, she's dragging herself down the down the street. <laughs> I still got to go into work today. I love me, Johns. I used all me sick days. <laughs> I got no more sick days. I I got it left in me. I promise I can survive. <laughs> she had dark brown wavy hair and blue eyes. And while she had a drinking problem, she was not described as an alcoholic. Very, you know, not like the last one was. Right. She had been married earlier in her life to a coachman named John Chapman. They had separated by 1884 or 1885 by mutual consent. A police report claimed that it was due to her drunken and immoral ways, but the real reason is unclear. John Chapman saw to his former wife by paying her 10 shillings a week until his death on Christmas Day, 1886. What a shitty Christmas gift. Right. Merry Christmas. You're dead. (laughs) It was said after that she cried and seemed to give it away altogether. She didn't take to prostitution until after John's death. At around 1.35 a.m. on September 8th, 
Annie returned to her lodging house. She didn't have the money for her room for the night, so she says she won't be long in getting it and leaves. At 5.30 a.m., Elizabeth Long sees Chapman with a man. They're talking. She hears the man say, Will you? And Annie replies, Yes. Annie Chapman had been facing Long, but the man she was speaking to only had his back to her, and she could make out no features. A few moments following the Long sighting, a young carpenter named Albert Kadash, living at 27 Hanbury Street, walks into his backyard. A five-foot-tall wooden fence separates his yard from 29 Hanbury Street, the very house that Elizabeth Long had seen Annie Chapman speaking with the mysterious man. Kadash hears the voice is quite close, but the only word he can make out is a woman saying, No! He then hears something fall against the fence. No. 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 Annie Chapman's body was discovered a little before 6 a.m. Her left arm was placed across her breast, the legs had been drawn up with the feet resting on the ground, and the knees turned outwards. Her face was swollen and turned toward its right side. The tongue protruded from between her front teeth. It appeared to be swollen as well. She had not been dead long enough for rigor mortis to have set in, but the doctor who attended the body post-mortem took note that it was beginning to set in. Yikes. Swollen tongue. Well, I think it was because she was strangled, which that can happen when people are are throttled or strangled, Right. um, that the tongue will protrude and swell. Wow. Yeah, We told you this was going to get graphic, y'all. Yeah, it's not pretty. The throat of the victim was again cut very deeply, from ear to ear. The cut was so deep, in fact, that there were two distinct clear cuts visible on the spine itself. The incision was again made from left to right. The instrument that cut the throat, which was again estimated to be a long, sharp knife, was also used to make the cuts on the abdomen. The doctor who performed the initial examination, Dr. George Bagster Phillips, noted that the knife may have been something like a bayonet or something familiar to the leather trades as an ordinary surgical case might not contain an instrument long enough. He also indicated that the killer seemed to have some anatomical knowledge. There's zero uh, evidence to back this up, but I wonder if that's where uh, Charles Manson got the idea for the, for the bayonet. bayonet. Maybe. I mean, maybe, maybe he was a fan. It wouldn't be. It wouldn't be surprising, you know, serial killers being fans of other serial killers. Works, oh, even yeah, though Charles sure. Manson isn't technically a. Right. That's a whole other thing. That's a whole other topic. Right, just being like, <laughs> hey, the bayonet worked out for this guy. Here you go, Tex. Here you go. Here you go, Tex. In the bayonet. And Tex was like, cool. It's and that was it. Cool. <laughs> Cool. I'm gonna go rip some things. (laughs) (laughs) The mutilation of the abdomen, though, is where the killer truly puts his talents on for show. It had been entirely laid open. The victim's intestines had been removed from the body and placed on the shoulder of the corpse. While from the pelvis, the uterus, ovaries, along with the upper portion of the vagina, as well as two-thirds of the bladder, had been entirely removed. Jeez, that takes a lot of which, which I'm guessing is why the intestines were moved out of the body because he was trying to get to certain other things. Right, he needed the room. So he was, he was like, just here, like, you just sit hold on the this. shoulder here. <laughs> and I'm going to do the rest of this with my legs crossed. <laughs> and I could not clench hard enough. <laughs> no trace of the missing organs were found. The incisions to remove them had been cleanly cut, avoiding the rectum and dividing the vagina low enough to avoid injury to the cervix. Well, that's nice of him, at least. It was, right. How courteous Thanks of you, not, sir. Thanks for not hurting me, cervix. <laughs> this was where the doctor saw the work of an expert or someone who had a decent amount of experience in anatomical or pathological examinations. 
The killer had struck again, and while police sought to find a suspect, it didn't seem to take long for the suspect to seek out the limelight himself. On September 27th, a letter was sent to the Central News Agency. Originally deemed to be just another attention-grabbing hoax at the time, it wasn't until three days later that the Dear Boss letter was deemed important enough to reproduce in the papers of the time, mainly because it contained a promise that the killer made and was fulfilled by his next two victims. Dear Boss, I keep on hearing the police have caught me, but they won't fix me just yet. I have laughed when they look so clever and talk about being on the right track. That joke about Leather Apron gave me real fits. I am down on whores and I shan't quit ripping them till I do get buckled. Grand work the last job was. I gave the lady no time to squeal. How can they catch me now? I love my work and want to start again. You will soon hear of me with my funny little games. I saved some of the proper red stuff in a ginger beer bottle over the last job to write with, but it went thick like glue and I can't use it. Red ink is fit enough, I hope. Ha ha. The next job I do, I shall clip the ladies' ears off and send to the police officers just for jolly, wouldn't you? Keep this letter back till I do a bit more work, then give it out straight. My knife's so nice and sharp, I want to get to work right away if I get a chance. Good luck. Yours truly, Jack the Ripper. Don't mind me giving the trade name. P.S. Wasn't good enough to post this before I got all the red ink off my hands. Curse it. No luck yet. They say I'm a doctor now. Ha ha. Okay, so that was some dramatic flair. Extremely. Like, if the letter is genuine, which they do, there is there are theories that it was um, a hoax by a journalist, that it was written by somebody else. But still, I mean, that's like... That's some dramatic flair. Like that's amazing. Oh, that, absolutely! Like that letter how, uh, that grabs attention. I love how extra he was with the yeah. I'm gonna write this in blood. That was oh, very it got extra. Thick like glue. Oh, yeah. You know what can you do? And then even beep, including beep, 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 beep. the ha ha, the ha ha's, ha ha's. So he had a very good sense of humor, but he laughed at his own jokes. So uh, no, you know what? I didn't even consider no. that. Thank can God I'm relate not though. Dating. <laughs> I laugh at mine all the time. Nobody else will. No, nobody we else is gonna. Don't. <laughs> this is true. This is true. As you were reading it, Lauren, I just couldn't help but think about if this letter was written in like today's time in oh, 2019 Lord. speak. Oh, Lord. I feel like this letter is the equivalent of him going to like talking to the police and being like, oh, feeling cute. Might cut a lady's ears off later. YOLO. Yeah. Just gonna yeet them off to the police. No. (laughs) No, we are not doing this. (laughs) Here's some ears. Yeet. (laughs) Here you go. (laughs) Do you think (laughs) Do you think that when they received them? Oh no. Oh no. Oh no. (laughs) You opened the door for this. I hope you were satisfied. this, This is my fault. Do you think that when they received them? The detective that got them looked to his partner or just another detective in the building was like, hey, does this look eerie to you? No, because the other one looked back at him and said, what's going on here? <laughs> Goodbye. No, stop it. Philip, didn't you hear me? <laughs> I can't hear you from over here. And then they were immediately fired. <laughs> this is why we don't get any work done ever. It's because of problems like this ear. I told you no more puns. 
Uh, now all Sorry, three of I us are to blame. Hear you. <laughs> oh, you couldn't hear me. <laughs> Not at all, mate. <laughs> you're, you're all fired. <laughs> just, just, just get out. You're all just awful. <laughs> just sacked. Get out. No, that was all three of us. So now all three of us have to get out. Yes, the rest of fired. this is just going to be dead air. <laughs> and we're back. And we're back. <laughs> anyway. The letter was reproduced in hopes that someone would recognize the handwriting, but the attempt came too late to save Catherine Eddowes and Elizabeth Stride, who were both murdered on the same night, September 30th. Mere blocks from each other. Elizabeth Stride, known as Long Liz, was born Elizabeth Gustav Daughter. On November 27th in 1843 in Sweden. She was 5'5", and at the time of her death, she was 45 years old. She's already taller than me. I'm 5'4". I mean, she's been the tallest so far. She really has. Everyone's everybody being even. everybody being super short back then, that just makes me feel... You know, I, I, I would be right at home there. <laughs> right in. <laughs> just get me, a, get me a pair of mutton chops and a top hat and, and watch me go. <laughs> I also wonder, like, she was born in Sweden. What brought her to London? Yeah. Like, I would think that Sweden would be far better than dreary London. Dreary London. Uh, maybe i don't know maybe it was a maybe she had family there or something maybe like don't really go into they didn't really go into a, a lot of that as to why they said that she could uh read english but her it was still broken a little gotcha. bit when she spoke it um but they don't really say why it's, it could be because she married somebody mm. I, I i think it maybe vaguely went into a little bit of that but i think this is the one that i think looks like tony collette yeah a little bit yeah, yeah. she's the one that does look like her she, like the others, had a pale complexion, light gray colored eyes, and curly brown hair. So clearly we're seeing a pattern, we're seeing a type. Mm-hmm. He has a type. He definitely has a type, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. All of the teeth in the lower left side of her jaw were missing. Also part of the type. Right. Also just and a sign know, for the time. time. Yeah, that was just the time. Lodgers in the home where she stayed described her as a quiet woman who would do a good turn for anyone. Now, okay, wait a minute. Is that being shady? Is that saying that, like, yeah, she would just fuck anybody that showed up? She'd lay down or, on her back for anyone. Or are they saying, like, oh, she would do good, nice things for people? Like, that's, I'm, I've, I'm kind of, like, there was a lot of different lingo at the time. Mm. So I'm not really 100% sure if that was just somebody being, like, oh, she'll fuck any Tom Dick Diary that shows up. Or, <laughs> or like, hey, she was a really nice lady, and, like, she would give you the shirt off her back. Kind of like Southern Bless like, Your Heart. Yeah. Oh, bless your heart. No, I was thinking like a like a backhanded sort of shady comment, mm. like, oh well, I mean, she definitely won't discriminate against her clientele. She'll fuck anybody. So mm. that was nice of her. <laughs> How <But> nice. It, <laughs> it didn't really make sense with like the quiet part, like, oh she's quiet. Yeah. It wouldn't be like, oh she's quiet, but she also but, fucks. <laughs> but she fucks. <laughs> <laughs> but she puts out. So getting back to our timeline. At 11 p.m. on September 30th, two laborers were going into the Bricklayer's Arms pub on Settle Street. As they entered, they saw Stride leaving with a short man who had a dark mustache and sandy eyelashes. So they were close enough to notice his eyelashes. Right. Sandy eyelashes. That's really close, like, to someone's face. Like, color or sand? Yeah. (laughs) They had sand in them, you mean? Yeah, like, every time he blinks, just whoosh. What did you think? He was, like, Ishtar? (laughs) He just come from the desert? It's Miss Sandy outside today. Uh, Sorry about that. The wind kicked up. (laughs) Blink, blink. He was wearing a billycock hat, a morning suit, and a coat. 
so like a dark suit, oh, I suppose. Okay. He so seemed very fitting. Yeah, he seemed respectably dressed. He was hugging and kissing Stride in the doorway of the pub for some time. The two laborers tried to get the man to come inside for a drink, but he refused. They then called to Stride, That's Leather Apron getting round you. Maybe they were right. Maybe. The man and Stride moved down towards Commercial Road. At 12.35 a.m., James Brown says he sees Stride with a man as he was on his way home. She was leaning against the wall and talking to a stoutish man around 5'7 in a long black coat that reached his heels. He has his arm up against the wall, and Stride is saying, no, not tonight, some other night. At 1 a.m., Louis Schultz, a jewelry salesman, entered Dutfield's yard with his cart. Let me try that one more time. At 1 a.m., Louis Schultz, a jewelry salesman, entered Dutfield's yard with his cart and pony. But the pony stopped at the entrance and refused to proceed. Because animals usually have a, they can a sense, sense about when something, that kind of something hinky's going on, yeah. Mm-hmm. Schultz assumed that something was blocking the path but could not see as the yard was completely pitch black. He used his whip to probe forward into the darkness and made contact with a body, which he initially believed to be blacked out drunk or asleep. So you should probably listen to these animals rather than yeah. like, hey, you know, there's a dead person here. Please I don't make really... me go around it. <laughs> I really don't want to touch hey. it. Ew, ew, ew look goat. at it. Ew. That was a goat. That oh was God, not a pony. Oh God, it's looking at me. Ew. <laughs> He entered the building nearby, the International Working Men's Educational Club, to get some assistance in rousing the unresponsive woman. He returned with two other men, Isaac Kozabrowski and Morris Eagle. It was only then they discovered Elizabeth Stride was dead, her throat cut. It is widely believed that Schultz's unexpected arrival frightened off the Ripper, who was forced to flee before, before performing his signature mutilations. Deem Schultz himself stated that he believed that the Ripper was still in the yard when he arrived due to the body still being warm and the odd spooked behavior of his pony. Dr. George Baxter Phillips, who handled the Chapman and Kelly murders previously, also performed the post-mortem examination of Elizabeth Stride. The body was lying on the near side of the yard with the face turned towards the wall and the feet towards the street. The left arm was extended and there was a packet of cashews in the left hand. These were pills used by smokers at the time to sweeten their breath. I've never heard of that. Nowadays, we just call them Tic Tacs. Or like a Nicorette or whatever, like some sort of, like, yeah, I guess like a mint, like Altoids. Stride gum. Get I'll get out. Get out. Get out. <laughs> I'm She's glad you again. clarified that, though, because I was thinking it was some like, English spelling of cashews. No, it was not a British extra U spelling of cashews. <laughs> well, like old Victorian yeah. illiterate spelling of cashews. Hey, they didn't weren't all illiterate. Yeah. Okay, just, Dickens and the other just, illiterate people. Just the poor folk. Not all left-handed. Mm-hmm. Not all the poor. Not all the people, just the poor folk. Just the poor ones. So like 99.9% yeah, of the population. Yeah, mo- like most of the, uh, yeah, most of basically everyone in this area. But not all of them. True. There were <laughs> newspapers at the time, obviously. Not all. Otherwise, Englanders. newspaper circulation would have been really shitty. I mean, people need blankets. They're poor. Oh, that's depressing. That is you depressing. Bummed me out. Now I'm upset. <laughs> <laughs> I like she, now she's upset. Now I'm upset. I'm. I've read about women getting their throats cut and their organs mangled, but. Newspaper blankets is too far. Yeah, newspaper blankets is what really does it for me. That just depresses the hell out of me. 
But you know what? You know, the cuts made across the throat, almost down to the spine. Uh, no, not depressing. That's just business as usual. The right arm was draped over the stomach. The back of the hand and wrist were stained with clotted blood. The legs were drawn up with the feet close to the wall. The body and the face were warm, but the hand on the stomach was cold. Probably because of the way the blood flows. Mm-hmm. The legs were noted to be quite warm. Stride was wearing a silk handkerchief around her neck, which Phillips determined to have been cut from a visible tear in the fabric. The cut in the scarf corresponded with the right angle of the jaw. There was a very clear incision on the neck. It was about six inches in length and two and a half inches in a straight line below the jaw. While the right side of the cut seemed more superficial and trailed off towards the end, the left side of the throat was where the deepest part of the cut was. The carotid artery, a main conveyance of blood, had been partially severed. Unfortunately, it would seem that the Ripper wasn't satisfied with his first victim that night and decided to take a second. Probably because he didn't get to finish. Yeah, he didn't get to do all the stuff he wanted to do, I think. Exactly. I was interrupted, I was, I was. <laughs> Catherine Eddowes, a.k.a. Kate Kelly, was born April 14, 1842. She was around the same height as the other victims, standing at five feet even. She had hazel eyes and dark auburn hair. She had a tattoo in blue ink on her left forearm, bearing the initials TC, in remembrance of a former lover, Thomas Conway. It's pretty hardcore even back in the yeah, day. Yeah, she had a tattoo. Right? That's yeah. pretty badass. Like, you had a tattoo. You would be such a badass woman nowadays yeah for sure but it also like you see how like i guess not prevalent that's the wrong word but like how far back this goes of like tattooing your lover's name on your body yeah like apparently that was a thing even like kind of then even back then i'm talking nowadays she'd totally be like a biker chick you know she'd have sleeves yeah oh absolutely She'd have whooped the Ripper's ass now. Probably. <laughs> She'd have whooped his ass. You think you're going to be the one to kill me? <laughs> one of us is going to die tonight. It's not going to be me. Switchblade. I plan on dying tonight. What are your plans? <laughs> <laughs> At around 8 p.m. on September 29th, PC Lewis Robinson comes across Eddowes, who is surrounded by a crowd outside 29 Aldgate High Street. She appears to be blacked out drunk in a heap on the pavement. P.C. Robinson gets her to her feet and brings her to Bishopsgate Police Station. They leave her in the cell to sleep off the drink till approximately 12.15 a.m. Kate is heard singing softly to herself in her cell. At around 12.30 a.m., she calls out to ask when she will be released, when you are capable of taking care of yourself. P.C. Hutt, who was on duty at the time, replies, I can do that now, Catherine says back to him. She is released at 1 a.m., Interesting note, side note, that this, that she, when she was released from jail, she actually gives the alias Mary Ann Kelly, which we'll find out why that's ironic here in a second when we get to the last victim. Uh-huh. Like I'm saying, she would, she would totally just be hardcore today. Yeah, true. It is estimated to have taken less than 10 minutes on foot from where she was to reach Mitre Square, where her body is later found, which leaves a 30-minute gap from the time she steps out of Bishopsgate Station to the time she is seen outside Mitre Square. So, like, maybe she, like, stopped and kind of meandered a little bit, but they're like, yeah, it's only, like, a 10-minute a walk from the police station to where her body's found. So there's really no accounting. Maybe that, too. She Maybe, <laughs> maybe she stopped to uh, make some cash, make some quick cash. Because uh, there's, yeah, there, there's no accounting for that 30 minutes, basically. She was probably just a little on the drunk side and just kind of teetered a bit, you know, walked, walked all strange. Probably just, just took her a while. Give some handy J's in the meantime. Handy you know. J's. 
just because you know this is an audi- audio platform yeah. is that the cor- correct that's word? a correct term um, audio platform. this is a audio platform uh for everybody quincy was making the hand job jacking off motion yeah. i was just gonna say suggest suggestive hand motions i can't even talk it was definitely a hand <laughs> job motion. motion it was a jerk off motion <laughs> it was i, I was saw gonna it. be all professional I, you know i seen it jerk off motion <laughs> at 1 35 a.m joseph lewende a commercial traveler in the cigarette trade and joseph hyam levy a butcher and harry harris a furniture dealer exit the imperial club at 16 to 17 duke street harry harris (laughs) that's yeah that's a that's a marvel character's name 100 percent. that is a comic book character and with a name like that that is a villain (laughs) yeah true true that's a lex luthor that's just waiting to happen furniture dealer my ass at the corner of duke street and church passage they see eddos and a man talking she is standing facing the man with her hand on her chest but not in a manner to suggest that she is frightened or resisting him Lewende describes the man as about 30 years old, 5'7", with a fair complexion and a mustache. He's of medium build, wearing a salt and pepper colored jacket, which fits loosely. He is also wearing a gray cloth cap with a peak of the same color. He has a reddish handkerchief knotted around his neck, which I guess was a way that sailors dressed at the time. Oh, interesting. Ten minutes later, at approximately 1.45 a.m., PC Edward Watkins comes across Edo's body in Mitre Square during his night patrol. Dr. Frederick Gordon Brown, a London police surgeon, was called to the murder scene. He arrived at Mitre Square around 2 a.m. and determined that Eddowes had been dead only about half an hour due to lack of rigor mortis. The face was quite mutilated. Both eyelids had been sliced through. A deep cut went across the bridge of the nose, and the tip of the nose was cut completely off. There was a cut on the right corner of the mouth as if made by the point of a knife. The cut was an inch and a half long and ran parallel to the lower lip. On each side of the cheeks, there were triangular cuts that peeled back the skin. Jeez. Again, we warned you guys. Yeah, just just face tartar. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean to laugh. You did mean to laugh at I that because it was funny. Because it was funny. <laughs> the, the joke, not the... Yeah. Whatever, moving on. <laughs> Digging yourself into a hole. <laughs> a hole I can't dig myself out of. Just pile the dirt on me and call me dead. <laughs> That's the end of me. I was going to make a joke, but I won't. <laughs> 180 years too soon. The throat was cut across from ear to ear, about six or seven inches. The muscles across the throat were cut clean through to the left side. The carotid artery was severed. The larynx was severed below the vocal cord, so even if she wanted to scream, she, she wouldn't couldn't. have been able wouldn't to. Have yeah. been able to scream. The cut on this side of the throat was so deep it reached bone. The right side was less deep, but nonetheless, the jugular vein had been punctured, but not completely severed. The cause of death was determined to be exsanguination from the left carotid artery. Death would have been immediate, and the mutilations were performed post-mortem as there were no blood spray or spurting of blood on the bricks or pavement around. There was also no blood on the front of Edo's clothes. When the body arrived at the mortuary on Golden Lane, when the body arrived at the mortuary on Golden Lane, the clothes were removed carefully and a piece of the deceased woman's ear dropped from the garment. So he kind of made talking about. He kind of made good on his ear his his irregular threat i gotta oh stop my i gotta stop god <laughs> no you know well, no okay so going back to this so he, he did the ear was cut off of Edo's 
but on um stride as well their uh one of her ears was also cut um and it was missing so they didn't find the ear on her um the police uh, officer and the doctor who found her at the time assumed it had maybe been from an earring that had been torn out mm. but they just never found that part of the ear so i just find it like really interesting that i mean basically he just made good on his promise like both of them had some sort of cuts or some sort of removal of their ears he keeps his promises yeah that's true he said i he's hear a, you don't believe me he's a, he's a what he's a no, I was stopping at her pun because she made another ear pun. Oh, oh, I wasn't listening. He's... What was your ear pun? Oh, I wasn't listening. Put your another listening one. ear pun. <laughs> he was a man of his word. God damn it! A man of his word. God damn it! <laughs> no more ear puns. No more ear puns. That was title of this up. episode: Jack the Ripper. He was a man of his word. God damn it! <laughs> ear puns galore. There's so many ear puns. While Edo's face had been subject to the Ripper's knife-wielding rage, so had been her abdomen, much like prior victims. Her abdomen had been cut open from the breastbone down to the pelvis. Her intestines had been removed and placed over the right shoulder. Again, this was the second time he did that. Mm-hmm. Her liver had been stabbed and cut. There were several cuts and stabs to the groin area, and her uterus had been completely excised and removed. The left kidney had also been removed, and Dr. Brown determined by someone who knew the position of the kidney. On October 1st, 1888, another letter arrived at the Central News Agency. I was not calling, dear old boss, when I gave you the tip. You'll hear about Saucy Jackie's work tomorrow. Double event this time. Number one squealed a bit. Couldn't finish straight off. Huh. Not the time to get used for police. Thanks for keeping last letter back till I got to work again. Jack the Ripper. This one, known as the Saucy Jackie Postcard, makes direct reference to the Dear Boss letter as well as to the murders of the previous night on September 30th. Side note, I will 100% be making barbecue sauce and naming it Saucy Jackie. Please do. Please. <laughs> that just it, um, that just sells itself. Exactly. It just sells itself. It's Saucy Jackie. Those who argue for the postcard's authenticity point out the removal of Stride's ear and the fact that the postcard mentions the double murder before it was described by the press. Either way, the streets were silent for a time, but the pall of death hung as low as fog over the East End. The Ripper stories had become sensationalized in the press, and everyone seemed to be wondering when the next victim would turn up, or if the authorities could catch up to him before then. On October 16th, George Lusk, the president of the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee, sort of an informal neighborhood watch, received a three-inch square cardboard box in the mail. Inside was half a human kidney, preserved in wine, along with the following letter. From hell, Mr. Lusk, sir, I send you after the kidney I took from one woman and preserved the other for you. The other piece I fried and ate when it was very nice. I may send you the bloody knife that took it out if you only wait a while longer. Signed, catch me when you can, Mr. Lusk. Medical reports found the preserved half of kidney to be very similar to the one removed from Catherine Eddowes, but findings either way turned out to be inconclusive. The handwriting, as well as the level of literacy in the letter, is markedly different from the first two, leading some to believe that the famed From Hell letter was indeed a hoax. Police were receiving large numbers of hoax letters at the time, at one point having to deal with an estimated 1,000 letters related to the case but perhaps the spelling and grammatical errors were part of a larger misdirection by an educated but deranged individual. So 
suck my dick, coppers. Yeah. <laughs> but it also could be said, you know, Saucy Jackie, it was preserved in wine. Mm-hmm. Could have been very drunk when he was writing them. Could be. <laughs> I'm drunk. <laughs> I just I just have this kidney. It's and fine. It was, I don't know where I nice. got it. I don't remember. I think I ate it. I don't know. It was a good sandwich. Anyway, <laughs> I am drunk. And I wrote you this note. And you should catch me because I'm going to do it again. Why haven't you responded? <laughs> I showed you my kidney. Please respond. Do you like me? Check yes or no. Do you want to catch me? Check yes or no. Or maybe. Oh, God. <laughs> All of this is like inscribed in the kidney. It's so like it's written on the kidney. Yeah. <laughs> That's the most romantic I... thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> like, like, I don't think I want to. <laughs> you know what? No, let's just let him have this one. <laughs> it's just, you know, just we're it's out. okay. <laughs> I- I've had it. We're out. <laughs> also, when they're talking about a deranged individual... Um, like we talked about earlier in the podcast, venereal diseases were extremely popular, so it could be. Pop- I wouldn't say popular. <laughs> I wouldn't say. Popular. I wouldn't say everybody wanted one. <laughs> but mom, Becky has syphilis. Why can't I? It's very okay. in right now. It's very. It's very. very it's very much the scene. I'm sorry. Was that a pun? No, but I wish it was. <laughs> it's very in right now. Oh God! I, I never thought I'd be missing ear puns. <laughs> No, don't start that again. Do not. Stop. Do not. That was not an invitation. Do not. (laughs) My point was, while VD may not have won Homecoming Queen, it was very popular. It was prevalent. Prevalent is the, yes. Popular, prevalent, tomato, tomato. Let's call the whole thing a rash. Let's call the whole thing, yes, a rash. And possibly call a doctor in the morning. Mm. Take two. Call me in the morning. I've got blood on me penis pillow. (laughs) Just clap it. It'll make it better. It burns when I pee. I'm going to go mad in a wheelchair staring at the sea. (laughs) Anyway, my point was... (laughs) There was a point to this. Yes. Yes. My point was that... Because these venereal diseases were extremely prevalent at the time, it could be because, you know, he was killing prostitutes that he had one. Mm. Perhaps he got from a prostitute. Ah. That could be. I mean, that's just going to add fuel to the fire because, I mean, clearly the guy already hates prostitutes and women in general. Okay. Was that a pun? What? Fuel to the fire. (laughs) (laughs) Burning. Because it mean, burns when he pees. Maybe. I don't know. I'm thinking more of like syphilis is eating his brain and that's what's happening. <laughs> Not like it hurts when I pee. <laughs> it hurts when I pee. So I'm going to go slash up some bitches. Like, no, I don't think that's. No. <laughs> Fuck you, bitches. I mean, that's like that's like a really extreme reaction to like, ow, it hurts in my pee hole. <laughs> I'm going to go stab some people. I'm going to go kill a bunch of hookers. Yeah, I don't think that was a rational reaction, but. I get what you're saying, definitely. Like, vendetta. Yeah. Vendetta or just because he caught something from a prostitute. He was a little extra mad about it. Not even that. It's just slowly progressing. Well, that too. Even rapidly at this point. Yeah, because God knows how long he may have had it. Because syphilis is about the tertiary phrase. Phase. Not phrase. The tertiary phase of syphilis is about 10 years. Right. Yeah. So he could have had it. Now be feeling the effects of it, going mad, mm. 
and that's why there's this disconnect in this the letters you yeah. know combobulation because i mean the way the way it's written is like barely literate like yeah. there's misspellings and like the handwriting is very like frenetic and frantic it doesn't even look anything like the first two no. right also add in the alcohol factor as well like i said earlier there's nothing else to do Except for become an alcoholic. And apparently stab hookers. And apparently stab hookers. And take out their kidneys and eat them. And eat them. (laughs) Who was the horror guy that ate kidney beans or lava beans with kidneys? Lava beans? Lava beans. What the fuck are lava beans? I don't fucking know. (laughs) Lava beans. Not lava beans. Lava beans. (laughs) And for, just for context, that's our little baby. She doesn't watch horror movies. (laughs) I knew the reference at least. Yeah, I'm proud of you. 99.8% of it. I'm proud of you. And you're talking Hannibal Lecter. I kind of want lava beans now. I was thinking lima beans and fava beans. And they came out lava beans. Does does this get me off the hook for puts the lotion on the skin? You know who you are. It's a reference for somebody that I know listens. Anyway, back to the letters. Mm -hmm. Thousands of them were sent to Scotland Yard along with leads, but no headway seemed to be made on the case. From varying and vague descriptions of possible assailants to the new press coverage of the crimes at the time, the Yard always seemed to be one fatal step behind the Ripper. And while, during October, the streets had been intensely quiet, peace would soon come to its most violent and goriest end when the Ripper took his final official victim. Mary Jane Kelly was approximately 25 at the time of her death, so she was the youngest out of right. all of the other ones. She was also the one of the taller ones. She was the tallest of them, standing at 5'7 and stout. She had blonde hair, blue eyes, and a fair complexion. She was said to have been quite beautiful. Wow. Kelly was living with Joseph Barnett at the time of her death. Though they were simply roommates, Barnett would often refer to Kelly as, quote-unquote, his wife. I mean, with her being super, super beautiful, I, I get that she would have... She'd Let's have a lot of admirers. male admirers, yes. <laughs> she had been previously married, but when her husband was killed in an explosion, my goodness. What the fuck? My goodness. <laughs> I mean, it was the 1800s. Probably I mean, true. A minor. I, I think it was, actually. It Not was minor in terms of like, like a kid. Minor is in, in a mine. Thank you for making that clarification that I don't really <laughs> think needed to be made. You See, I thought know. you were saying minor as in it was only a minor explosion. Oh, but just a minor Just explosion. a small one. Just a wee one. Just a wee explosion. He's just a wee go boom. <laughs> a wee go boom. <laughs> and then he wasn't alive no more. <laughs> just suddenly we go boom. And, and he stopped moving. <laughs> so after that, she moved to Cardiff in Wales, where she supposedly became a prostitute before moving to London in 1884. She met Joseph Barnett, who was a market porter. People who knew them say Barnett was kind to her and gave her money on occasion, which seemed to keep her off the streets. However, in August or early September of 1888, Barnett lost his job, and Mary Jane returned to the streets in order to make money. Barnett decides to leave her at this time due to the traffic of prostitution in and out of the house, which he apparently did did not agree with, had a problem with. I mean, I definitely see that being an issue. Yeah, I guess they had a fight, and it was a pretty nasty fight and and he was like fuck it i'm out but also are you paying the bills i mean yeah she was the only breadwinner of the yeah, house at the you time you got fired are you looking for a job yeah i, I guess. still feel pretty uncomfortable with, i guess unsavory types coming in and out of my house every day yeah i think that was his kind of his problem but it's with also it. like you're presenting problems instead of solutions you're whispering i know <laughs> almost every day after the split barnett would still visit mary jane 
On November 9th, he stops by between 7.30 and 7.45 p.m. He said she was in the company of another woman who lived at Miller's Court. He said she lamented the life that she was living and wished to go back home to Ireland where her people lived. At 8 p.m., Barnett departed and returned to the boarding house where he played whist until 12.30 a.m. and then retired to bed. At 2 a.m., George Hutchinson, a resident of the Victoria Working Men's Home, returned to the area. He's walking on Commercial Street and passes a man at the corner of Thrall Street, but pays no attention to him. Which sounds like a running theme in all of these uh, yeah, eyewitness he, things. He like, was kind of an unremarkable enough where nobody was going to notice yeah, this like, guy. Just He wasn't like, he didn't have like, you know, obviously like a ridiculous, like extra tall top hat on with a, <laughs> an arrow that said, please look at me, about to kill someone. He didn't look like the Monopoly man about ready not. to commit a crime. He did not, apparently. Although, Halloween costume man. idea. Monopoly man about to commit a crime. There, you go. there we go. The Monopoly ripper. <laughs> At Flower and Dean Street, he meets Kelly, who asks him for money. He declines, and she says she has to go and find some money, and walks in the direction of Thrall Street. She meets the man Hutchinson had passed earlier. The man puts his hand on Kelly's shoulder and says something, which they both share a laugh over. I told you, he was funny. Told her a joke. Told her a joke. Hutchinson hears Kelly say, All right. And the man say, You will be all right for what I have told you. Interesting. Mm. What the fuck does that even mean? I don't know, but also, what did he say to make her laugh? I think it's a dick-sized joke. Yeah, um, well, maybe. Oh, oh you Ooh. will be all right. Oh. I got a huge... Nope. Nope. <laughs> He's tuna can Jerry. <laughs> Jerry the... Tuna can Jerry the Ripper. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't quite have the same ring to it. No. no. He had it right the first time. Jack yeah. the Ripper. So the man then puts his right hand on Kelly's shoulder and they begin to walk towards Dorset Street. Hutchinson notices that the man has a small parcel in his left hand. The fuck? Left hand again. In his left hand. <laughs> I was just like, when, when did I say Fucking wrong? Fucking lefties. Hey. Hey. Hey, yo. You only get a couple more of those. <laughs> Everybody I plan gets to one. use each one. <laughs> Hutchinson notices that the man has a small parcel in his left hand. While standing under a streetlight outside the Queen's Head pub, Hutchinson finally gets a good look of the man accompanying Kelly. He has a pale complexion, a slight mustache, turned up at the corners. He has dark hair and dark eyes and bushy eyebrows. Very similar description. Mm-hmm. Mustache is always mentioned. Always mustache. Say everybody. It was pretty common at the time. Facial hair was kind of a common thing. Like, if you didn't have facial hair, you were either a woman, a child, or just plain weird. Yeah. Nowadays, the opposite. I'm pretty sure even the women had facial hair. With his mustache turned up at the corners, he sounds like a hipster. (laughs) Yes, yes. What, are you some kind of Jack the Ripper-esque hipster? This is very high quality. (laughs) I was ripping before anyone thought it was cool, so. Like, before it was, like, mainstream, so, like, whatever, guys. I don't even wear glasses. I wear a monocle. Thanks. Excuse me. Glasses are so mainstream. So mainstream. Oh, God. He was also wearing a soft felt hat pulled over his eyes, a long dark coat, a white collar with a black necktie fixed with a horse hair pin. He carries kick gloves in his right hand and a small package in his left. He's around 5'6 or 5'7 and about 35 years old. Kelly and the man cross Commercial Street and turn down Dorset. Hutchinson follows them. Kelly and the man stop outside Miller's court and talk for about three minutes. 
Kelly is heard to say, All right, my dear, come along, you will be comfortable. The man puts his arm around Kelly, who kisses him. I've lost my handkerchief, she says. At this, he hands her a red handkerchief. The couple head to Miller's court. Hutchinson waits until the clock strikes 3 a.m. before moving on. As a general rule, when someone's like, you will be comfortable, I immediately doubt that. I'm immediately uncomfortable. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing that they've done, just I'm immediately like, what if I'm not comfortable? Oh no! And that makes me uncomfortable. (laughs) About an hour later, Elizabeth Prater is awakened by her kitten Diddles walking on her neck. As kittens often do. (laughs) cats tend to do. She hears a faint cry of, oh murder! But as this cry is very common in the area, she pays no attention to it. What the fuck? <laughs> Apparently it is a like, rough neighborhood and people are just screaming murder all the time. There's a half dead chick over there, but you know, I gotta get to work. She like pulled up her like, like sleep, you know, the sleep eye mask and was like, what the fuck? Again? Again? Jesus. Damn. I need to fucking sleep oh, here. murder. Like she just knocks on the blinds. Shut up! <laughs> I don't care. Murder <laughs> means silently. <laughs> Can you die quietly, please? I'm trying to get some shut eye. I have work at 3 a.m. <laughs> Nothing more is heard from or of Kelly for the remainder of the night. The next morning at 10.45 a.m., John McCarthy, the owner of Miller's Court, sends Thomas Bowyer to collect past due rent from Mary Kelly. After Bowyer received no response from knocking, the door was locked, he pushes aside the curtain and peers inside. Upon seeing the body, he informs McCarthy, who, after seeing the remains of Kelly for himself, runs to Commercial Street Police Station. So the curtains are on the outside of the house? Or the apartment? Yeah, I guess the curtains must have been on the outside or something, because he must have been able to peer through the, like, push the curtains aside to look through the window. Exposed which is interesting, yeah. And... Well, I mean, it sounds like a slum, so I don't think he really gave a crap. Yeah, you know, probably It was probably, not. like, less curtains and more just tarp. Yeah, and it was less <laughs> I don't think it was like more of a hole in the wall well i don't think it was like you know like a nice little window box with flowers and stuff it was just like no set a pie on yeah Yeah, exactly throw open the the window every now and then to start singing and birds show up and they're chirping and everything's really happy and this ain't no disney movie there were cries of oh murder a lot do you think there was nice windows (laughs) can we have that in an upcoming disney movie yes (laughs) oh murder So Inspector Walter Beck returns to Miller's court with McCarthy. When police finally make entrance into the room, they find Mary Kelly's clothes neatly folded on a chair. Mary Jane Kelly had the worst mutilation and abuse from the Ripper to date. Dr. Thomas Bond, a police surgeon, was called in on the murder. His post-mortem report was as follows. Quote, The body was lying naked in the middle of the bed, the shoulders flat, but the axis of the body inclined to the left side of the bed. The head was turned to the left cheek. The whole of the surface of the abdomen and thighs was removed, and the abdominal cavity emptied of its viscera. The breasts were cut off, the arms mutilated by several jagged wounds, and the face hacked beyond recognition of the features. The tissues of the neck were severed all around down to the bone. The viscera were found in various parts, the uterus and kidneys, with one breast under the head, the other breast by the right foot, the liver between the feet, the intestines by the right side, and the spleen by the left side of the body. The flaps removed from the abdomen and thighs were on the table. The bed clothing at the right corner was saturated with blood, and on the floor beneath was a pool of blood covering about two feet square. The wall by the right side of the bed, in a line with the neck, was marked by blood which had struck it in a separate number of splashes. The face was gashed in all directions, the nose, cheeks, eyebrows, and ears being partly removed. 
The lips were blanched and cut by several incisions running obliquely down to the chin. The neck was cut through the skin and other tissues right down to the vertebrae, the fifth and sixth being deeply notched. Both breasts were removed by circular incisions, the muscle down to the ribs being attached to the breast. The intercostals between the fourth, fifth, and sixth ribs were cut through and the contents of the thorax visible through the openings." Unquote. He had fun on this one. Yeah, he had a lot more time to, to do what he wanted to do. Well, obviously she was comfortable with whoever it was because they the room wasn't in disarray other than obviously the body found on the bed. Um, the Her boots were supposedly by the fireplace. Her her She was in a nightgown or what was remaining of one. And the clothes were neatly folded. Well, and in this one he had access to the, her room. Like he was in her room rather than having to do it in the street so there was yeah. no one to interrupt him there was yeah there was no interruption time he could take his time and do what he wanted and they did mention that the doors were locked yeah so there's no important. danger of somebody barging in exactly now i know i'm basically like the queen of conspiracy theories with this podcast because it seems like every single case that we do you're I like think of what like, if yeah what <laughs> if that's kind of how my mind works i like it it's uh both a both both a pro and a con. But anyway, so you were mentioning how she was obviously very comfortable with mm-hmm. this man. Earlier, we had mentioned that, you know, venereal diseases like syphilis can take 10 years mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. kind of start. What if they knew each other at some point? I mean, it's possible. But maybe she kind of forgot that she knew him. And maybe that's why she was laughing because he's like, oh, haha, we actually know each other. Um, and that could be perhaps why hers was the most violent because there was a little bit of vendetta vengeance in there. Like you did this to me. I'm going to. Oh, like F maybe you up. he thought he was, she was the one that like gave him it in the first place. Or it something, was or, you. Or right. it looked like maybe she just happened to look like right. the woman who did. Oh yeah. Cause, Cause he did kind of have a type. Yeah. Right. And be going for like intense murders typically yeah. typically if they're like done to that extreme there was passion and like really hate behind it for some yeah, personal there's, reason there's i mean they've even said that with other murders especially ones that are knife related ones that are like more than one stabbing you know when somebody is stabbed 40 50 times that's rage that's hatred right that's, when you're stab when you stab somebody 40 times that's 39 more times that's required than required to kill somebody right. you just need one people yeah just please one well-placed one do it please and... don't take that as instruction yeah. no <laughs> please com- don't go around we completely divide ourselves where you're just nope please don't please don't do that lauren says it only takes one stab so i'm gonna do it D- don't no yeah, please don't do that please but, don't but this was this was <laughs> anger this right. was like, I mean, he just wanted to obliterate this person. Right. Yeah. That's hence a conspiracy theory. I yeah. don't know. There's... It could be. It's 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 possible. I mean, if she'd been around long enough and if she'd been working around that area a long enough time, it's possible that maybe she had regulars that would come back and see her or, you know, if she had like a regular clientele, mm-hmm. maybe she recognized this guy. There are actually several theories about this, but we'll most likely get into that on uh, part two. Yeah, when we go into yeah. the suspects. Seriously, this case is so massive, it needs two parts at least yeah. to cover. So he wasn't done there. Mm. Quote, the skin and tissues of the abdomen from the costal arch to the pubes were removed in three large flaps. The right thigh was denuded down to the bone, 
The left thigh was stripped of skin fascia and the muscles as far as the knee. On opening the thorax, it was found that the left lung was intact, but the lower part of the right one was broken and torn away. The pericardium was open below the, and the heart was absent. With this final killing, the streets went quiet once more and Jack the Ripper, whomever he or she was, walked off the pages of penny dreadfuls and newspapers and straight into the annals of unsolved murder history. There are more than a dozen suspects in the case, and while no one was ever apprehended for the killings, it is safe to say that the curious incident of the Whitechapel murders of 1888 paved the way for countless serial killers after. Very curious. Very curious. <laughs> curious incident of, you know, just a couple murders. You know, just a few just murders. Curious. I mean, there was so much crime, though, at the time in that area that it was... I mean, these ones were noteworthy because of their brutality. Right. Um, those. That's where it really broke the mold, honestly, mm-hmm. is because that's where it gained such attention is because Notoriety. they were so gruesome and because of the letters right the letters too and it was the first one of the first incidents of a serial killer giving themselves a name yeah and like taunting and taunting the authorities and taunting the uh the news media and 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 stuff like that so it was kind of the first the first instance of that which obviously then we see many years later in, in several other serial killer oh, cases. Oh, definitely. One of my favorites, actually, which is really twisted to have a favorite serial killer. I have but... a favorite one, too. Okay, thank God. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, the Zodiac Killer, one yeah. of my favorites. Uh, yeah, he did the exact same thing several, several years later. And BTK's done it. Um, there's quite a few that have done the letter thing where they taunt taunt the authorities is they you know it's a typical trait of serial killers that they think they're smarter than everybody and more recently um i just read american predator which is focused on uh isaac keys israel keys i always get it mixed up um he kidnapped a girl in alaska anyway one of his things was taunting the police and being like oh well i'll tell you everything but I'm not going to tell you just yet and kind of having that taunting playing games with kind of like how Jack the Ripper has been. That's true. That's they. That's part of it too, where it's like, I'm going to give you something, but I'm not going to give you everything because that makes them feel in control. Right. They feel like they have all the cards and it's like, well, I'll give you one, but I'm not going to give you to show you my whole hand. Fuck you. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> I'm not going to give you the milk because you won't buy the cow. That's a stupid phrase. Yeah, well. The cow in this case was he wanted to be executed. Yeah, well. Mm. And while we hate to leave you on a cliffhanger, you join us again in two weeks for Ripperology Part 2, The Suspects, where the ghoul babes take a look at the most compelling suspects in the famous case and determine who could have actually done the deed. A big thank you to our editor, as always, Quincy. Yay, he might be dead next week. Maybe. We'll see. Yeah, we're definitely going to sever the corroded artery there. Slice, slice, slice. Slice, slice, slice. Also, a big shout out to our fans, uh, Mike McCarthy, who's left us some very nice messages on our Wix site. Brad Acevedo, I swear to God, we don't pay this man to say the nice things he says. <laughs> we to really us. don't. We really don't. But we probably um, should. Right. And all the people that have said very nice things about our podcast would makes us very, very happy. Yes, we definitely awesome. appreciate it. Thank you guys so much for listening. We're just so happy that someone's listening. And make sure you pass us around to your friends. If you like what you hear, tell people. Tell get people. Them to listen. Tell yeah. people. We're on all the places you get your podcasts. So we're on Spotify, iTunes. 
out of website. I mean, the only thing we're not Adventure. on yet is iHeartRadio, so we'll get there soon. But yeah. Throw a rock and we're on it. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> anyway. Stay, stay spooky, spooky friends. friends.